Good morning. Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Listen to God's word. At that time, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River so that John would baptize him. John tried to stop him and said, I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me. Jesus answered, Allow me to be baptized now. This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. So John agreed to baptize Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, he immediately came up out of the water. Heaven was open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God coming down like a dove and resting on him. A voice from heaven said, This is my Son who I dearly love. I find happiness in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Ebenezer Church. Thank you. You know, it's, it's not every day. It's not every day in somebody's life you know in advance you're going to remember this day for the rest of your life. This, this is one of those days for me. All my life I wanted to be a pastor, not just any pastor. I wanted to serve a congregation like Ebenezer Church, congregation that welcomes over 500 children to vacation Bible school. Are you kidding me? 300 volunteers to serve those precious children. To serve a church that said, I may never meet you because you live in Sierra Leone, Africa, but I promise to the glory of God, I'm going to help you have a higher quality of life than you did before. A church that says whatever problem you're facing, whether it's divorce or grief, or whether you're just struggling to find a partner to help you raise those beautiful children God has given you, whatever challenge you're facing in your life, you need to know that we are here to help because this is a place where Jesus Christ really does change lives. It's not a mission. It's not a motto. It's not a slogan. It's just the truth. Yeah. I'm going to remember this day forever. Because starting today, I get to change the world with you. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. We come from different locations, different perspectives, different situations. We come out of anxiety and fear. We come out of joy and hope. But we have come to accomplish that task for which we were created, the worship of you, our living God. And so in these moments, I pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us in this place and that genuinely this place would be a place where you would change our lives. That we would leave these moments transformed that we could go forth and transform the world. These things we pray in the name and to the glory of Jesus our Christ and the people of God said, Amen. One of the things you're going to learn about me is that I have a tendency to play favorites. Not 
Not with people so much. Though I do have a favorite wife. I feel like that's okay, right? Uh, My my tendency to play favorites deals with the fact that uh, I have a favorite book in the Bible. And in time, you're going you're gonna to know this book very well because it's my favorite book. Because John is my favorite book. And it's not just, not just my favorite book in the Bible. I think it's the most important book that's ever been written. And here's why. John has three compatriots uh, in terms of Gospels. There are four total, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels are oftentimes called the synoptic Gospels. And that's a big fancy word that means they look alike. Because they do. Matthew, Mark, and Luke follow the same patterns. They tell similar stories. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke actually have the same purpose. Written between 70 and 80 AD, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written to tell us the what of the event of Jesus Christ. What happened with his birth? What happened with his life? What happened with his teaching and his death and his resurrection? They are there to give us the facts. But John... John's a different story altogether. John was written, some people say 20, some people say 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if if John wrote just to tell people what happened, it would kind of be like me writing a book today to tell you that the Soviet Union fell. Oh, what? It happened 30 years ago. Yeah. It wouldn't make any sense for John to write a gospel to tell people what happened when that had already been told 30 years ago. What John was doing was something different. John was coming to the end of his life. He was looking at the church around him and he was terrified that the people of God simply did not get it. That they didn't understand. That they didn't really, really understand why Jesus Christ came to the earth to live, to die, and to experience resurrection. And so, John writes his gospel. And what John is trying to do is he's trying to explain the why of the Christ event. And the way he does this is by recounting different experiences that Jesus has with people who themselves don't understand. Because John is full of people who don't get it. And he uses those people as a foil to help his readers come to understand why Jesus came. Rather than talk about, let me give you an example. In John chapter 3, Jesus has a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. The Bible says he came to Jesus in the middle of the night. I like to call him Nick at night. (laughs) Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and he says to him, How can I get what you have? I'm I'm a teacher. I'm I'm a Pharisee, I'm a member of the ruling Sanhedrin, but I I don't have what you have. How can I get what you have? And Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, here's what you got to know about Nicodemus. If you were to ask Nicodemus to tell you about his faith, he'd tell you the story of Abraham. How God said to Abraham, look up to the heavens, Abraham. Try and count the stars. Then I want you to go to the seashore. I want you to number the grains of sand on the seashore because that's how many offspring you're going to have. And I'm going to make a covenant between your offspring and me. So, you could say, 
Nicodemus trusted his salvation to the fact that he was the son of 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 Abraham. Said differently, Nicodemus trusted in his birth for his salvation. What does Jesus say to the guy who trusts in his birth for his salvation? Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Isn't that amazing? I don't, I don't feel like you think it's as amazing as I do. <laughs> it's, it's perfect. This is a man who trusts his birth for his salvation. So Jesus says to him, you must be born again. You know what Nicodemus says back to Jesus? He said, you, uh, you want me to crawl back where? <laughs> what he actually says is, how is it possible for me to enter my mother's womb a second time and be born again? <sighs> Nicodemus didn't get it. Next chapter. John chapter 4, Jesus has this amazing conversation with a woman. The Bible says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. The thing about Jewish people is they didn't like to go through Samaria because Samaria was filled with Samaritans. And Jewish people didn't like Samaritans. They thought of them as outcasts and half-breeds and unclean. And if you touched one of them, you yourself became unclean. So most Jewish people never went through Samaria, but the Bible said Jesus had to go through Samaria, and some people think it was out of geographical necessity, but I think Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had an appointment with a woman at a well. So Jesus shows up to this well, and the Bible tells us it was in the middle of the summer. It tells us it was in the middle of the day. It tells us it was in the middle of the desert. Now, one of the things you should know about me is... Thanks to Uncle Sam, I got to go on four all-expense trip, paid trips to the Middle East. Yay! And I was honored to serve my country. I, I, I am honored to have served my country. But the one thing I can tell you about the Middle East is, and I can say this definitively, church, it is hot there. It's hot. Have you ever seen one of those thermometers you just point at something and the, the temperature pops up on the screen? You ever seen one of those digital style thermometers? Uh, on my third tour in Iraq, we were about 30 miles northwest of Baghdad. And the, the tarmac, the place we would park our jets, somebody had one of those thermometers and they were pointing it at the tarmac, the concrete down there, and it said 143 degrees. Church, that's hot. The middle of the desert, middle of the day, middle of the summer. Jesus finds this woman at a well. And by the way, the fact that that she came to the well in the middle of the day rather than in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening, the fact she came in the middle of the day to carry something as heavy as water tells us something about her. Almost certainly it tells us that this particular woman was not welcome with the other Samaritans. Said differently, she was an outcast even from the outcasts. So she walks up to the well where she finds the Son of God. And he said, would you give me a drink? And she said, don't you know you're too good for me? We don't share things in common. 
And Jesus turns the tables on her and he said, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask me and I'd give you living water, water that is literally alive and you would never thirst again. In the middle of the desert, in the middle of the day, in the middle of the summer, to a woman experiencing a drought down in her soul, the Son of God says, I'll give you living water and you will never thirst again. Isn't that perfect? Again, you don't think it's as perfect as I do, but I think it's perfect, church. (laughs) You know what she says back to Jesus? She looks around and she goes, Where's your bucket? (laughs) She asked him where his bucket of living water was. (laughs) Fair to say she didn't get it, yes? One more example. In John chapter 8, Jesus has a conversation with some men from Judea. And Jesus says these words to them. He says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will do what? Set you free. Here's what you got to understand. Kingdom of Israel was established about a thousand years before Jesus was born. First by Saul, who was unsuccessful, and then by David, who united all the tribes. David started his reign about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. After he dies, his son Solomon takes over. Solomon reigns until about 900 years before the birth of Jesus. Then the kingdom divides. The northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. Everything goes hunky-dory for about 180 years until in the year 721 B.C., an Assyrian king named Tiglath-Pileser conquers the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, He absolutely decimates it. He destroys it. He brings it to its knees. It's called the diaspora. Some people have called it the diaspora. Uh, My kids, Brock and Parker, Brock is five, Parker's three. They like to pick up those dandelions that have turned wispy, you know what I'm talking about, and blow on them, and the spores go everywhere. That's what diaspora means. King Tiglath-Pileser struck the nation of Israel and he sent it to the four corners of the earth. It, it would never, it would never be the same again. But the southern kingdom remained intact until 587, when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquers the southern kingdom. From that experience, we get books like uh, Lamentations and Ezekiel and parts of Jeremiah and Isaiah. It's this rich theological time. The Babylonians are soon followed by the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians are followed by Alexander the Great and the Greeks. The Greeks are followed by the Romans. And such by the time Jesus has the conversation with these men in John chapter 8, they've been under foreign occupation for the better part of a thousand years. What does Jesus say to people enslaved for the better part of a millennium? He says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they looked at him dead in the face and said, what are you talking about, Jesus? We have never been slaves. The man who trusted in his birth for his salvation, Jesus said, be born again. In the middle of the desert, in the middle of summer, in the middle of the day, he said to a woman who was dry down to her very spirit, I'm going to give you living water. 
to the men enslaved for the better part of a thousand years, he said, I'm going to set you free. But time after time after time, the people respond in resounding chorus, Jesus, we have no idea what in the world you're trying to say to us. We don't get it. And on my first Sunday here at Ebenezer Church, the easiest thing in the world for me to do would be to stand up here and ridicule Nicodemus and the woman at the well and those men from John chapter 8 because they didn't get it. But the problem with that is it would be terribly inauthentic. Because for most of my life, God was trying to say something to me using a voice I should have understood, but for most of my life, I simply didn't get it. Let me explain. I grew up in a church that would kind of remind you of a Baptist church, but really a southern, southern Baptist church. You ever had an experience with churches like this? Anybody? Okay. So the people in the church loved me very much. But what kind of got subtly caught and taught was that God was pretty angry at me. You ever been to a church like this? Um, in fact, in my mind's eye, I had this... Uh, I remember being 10 years old and laying awake at night, hoping Jesus wouldn't come back, because I hit my brother in the shoulder that day. I didn't want to go to hell. I had an image of God. I was terrified of God. Not a healthy fear. In fact, the, the best way I could articulate the image is 10-year-old little Rob had this image of God, a God on a bench, a judgment bench, like law and order. Doom, doom, you know? And God sat behind the bench, black robe, angry face. And God was just up there watching me and watching me and watching me and waiting for me to make that one mistake. We found an image that kind of articulates what it looks like. Would you bring that up? That was, it kind of took that out of Rob's mind. Yeah. But to make this even crazier, 10-year-old Rob, okay, 10-year-old Rob had this image, a vision of, of an umbilical cord of grace. Between Rob and God. And in God's hand, rather than the gavel, there was a divine hatchet. And I had, I, I had this image, I, I couldn't make this up. I had this image of God watching me walk around, watching me on the earth. And I had this fear that I was going to take that one step too far. And God was going to let the hatchet fly. As if God was going to say, I, I never knew you were going to go that far. Like Nicodemus, like the woman at the well, like the Jews of John chapter 8, I didn't get it. But now, now I'm starting to get it. See, one of the things you need to know about me is that you are looking at the captain of the 1996-1997 Sevier County High School Smokey Bears basketball team. This guy. 
we won nine games my senior year. I think we lost seven. Teen of them. <laughs> we were we were quite bad. We really were. But here's the thing I remember most about my senior year of high school. It wasn't the it wasn't the academics at all, I can promise you that. What I remember most vividly about my senior year of high school is my mother. My mom is this sweet little thing. You may get a chance to meet her one day, and if you do, you'll say, boy, she sure is a sweet little thing. What I remember most vividly about my senior year of high school is that my mom never missed a game. And she would sit up there in the bleachers, and any time... I would get the ball. My sweet little mother would stand up and yell at the top of her lungs. That's my boy! That's my boy! It was the single most embarrassing thing that could possibly happen to a high school senior in his life. And here's the thing about it. (laughs) That amazing woman. She didn't stand up and yell for me because I was good. You know how I know? I wasn't good. (laughs) It it didn't matter to her when I touched the ball if I, I made a basket or if I dribbled the ball off my foot out of bounds, which happened with a fair degree of regularity. She didn't stand and scream for me because I was good. She stood and screamed for me because I was hers. I didn't get it. Just in case you think I've made this up, about a week and a half ago, your communication staff here at Ebenezer sent out a Facebook post saying, Welcome, Pastor Rob. I just want to show you how my mom responded to that that Facebook post. (laughs) Uh, you might read this. <laughs> and some of you are reading it. This is, that is my baby boy. No. That's my baby boy! That's how that is to be read. Right there. <laughs> I didn't get it. I was like Nicodemus, I was like the woman at the well, the Jews of John chapter 8, my whole life I didn't get it. I thought God was the God on the bench of judgment and condemnation who couldn't wait to cut me off. And all the while, using the most important relationship of my young life, God was telling me a different story. God was saying, I'm not the God on the bench of judgment and condemnation, I'm the God in the bleachers. I'm the one who stands and screams at the top of my divine lungs, that's my girl, that's my boy. Perfect? Nope. But mine. When Jesus comes up out of the water in Matthew chapter 3, that baptismal scene, 
He comes up out of the water and the heavens part and the Holy Spirit descends. And there's this voice that comes from glory and it says, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I find great pleasure. My favorite translation of that text says, This is my beautiful and beloved child. Through the event of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, when the the living God looks at you, God says the same thing. This is my beautiful, my beloved child. Are they perfect? No. But they're mine. God does not love us because we have virtue. We have virtue because God loves us. I think this is the single most important thing in the world for people to know. I think it's the bedrock around which we build everything else in our lives. God loves you. God's crazy about you. And there's nothing you can do about it. Over the course of the next couple weeks, I'm going to try and communicate the most important three things I think people could know. One, you're loved no matter what. Two, you have a place to belong and it's right here. Three, God has given us a purpose in this world. We'll get to that over the course of these next few weeks. But today we begin at the beginning. You are loved. The beautiful and beloved children, you are loved no matter what. I wonder if you'd indulge me for one final thought this morning. Ebenezer United Methodist Church was founded back in 1856. About four miles from here off of Onville Road. The church was on that campus for about 145 years. And Have any of you ever been to a little bitty church? Like a little bitty church, right? Here's the thing about little bitty churches. You've got one sweet little old couple that sits over here and one sweet little couple that sits back there and some old dude on the back row, right? And you wonder, why don't these people sit together? And there's an answer for that. Because in their mind's eyes, the row that looks empty to you and me is actually full of their family that used to come there with them. This seat next to me may look empty to you, but that's my mama's seat. She may have been dead for 30 years, but that's her seat. And when you understand that about little bitty churches you start to understand how absolutely unbelievable it was when in 1991 these people who had been in the same place for 145 years said, we feel like God is calling us to go somewhere else. Because what those people did is they decided that they were going to prioritize the spiritual well-being of their grandchildren and children they'd never met before over the heritage they'd received from their grandparents. In other words, those people called Ebenezer They chose to be faithful instead of comfortable. 
That's amazing to me. In 1991, we moved to the campus right here on Embry Mill. And over the course of the next three years, the church grew. Average worship attendance here in 1994 was 122 people on a Sunday morning. Then God sent a guy named Mark Miller. At the height of all the great work Mark did, the average worship attendance here at Ebenezer Church was 1,240. That's a percentage growth of over a 1,000%, church. And if you were here today and heard me say that, he'd turn purple. And he'd say, oh, it's by the glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the glory of Jesus Christ, and he's right. But you can't overstate the importance of a good leader. A couple years ago, the Close sisters passed away. They left us some property worth millions of dollars. A couple years back, There are about four acres here between uh, Ebenezer Church and Embry Mill Development. Four acres, we went to Embry Mill. We said, hey, would you guys sell us those four acres? They said, yes, for $2 million an acre. $8 million. Then they came back to us last year and said, you know what? We thought about it. We're just going to give it to you. (laughs) Two weeks ago, this was a dead end. You had to be wanting to come to Ebenezer to get here. Today, somebody somebody paved the road to a new community with 2,500 new homes and 7,000 people. And I look. I look at a history of people who are willing to be courageous to the glory of Jesus Christ. I look at a remarkable leader who has been here for 22 years. I look at the gifts God has dropped in our laps. I look at the opportunity that's literally just over the hill and I ask myself, I wonder, do we get it? Because you'd have to be blind not to see that the living God is not yet through with Ebenezer Church. But it starts with this immutable, unchanging truth. You're loved, and there's nothing you can do about it. So today, uh, I got you a present. I'm making the big bucks now, so I decided I'd splurge on you a little bit. And uh, I got these bracelets. They're, they're orange and black to remind you of my little basketball story and my mama yelling for me. <laughs> on one side, it says, God in the bleachers. On the other side... It says love no matter what. I'm gonna, you're gonna get them as you walk out the doors. There's one for everybody. Uh, if you have children in, in one of our children's programs this morning, they're gonna, they're gonna get one too. Um, and I challenge you to wear it as a reminder of who you are. Until such time as somebody asks you about it and then I invite you to give it to them as a reminder of who they are. The beautiful and beloved children of God. And there's not a thing we could do about it. I can't wait to see what God is going to do together with all of you right here in this congregation. I can't wait to see how Jesus is going to help us transform and change lives. But it all starts with this truth. You serve a God in the bleachers who stands and screams and shouts and pulls
and loves you.